Like most of the New Testament, the letter to, that Paul writes to Timothy is written during a time of great persecution, um, probably like the world has never seen in relation to Nero being the leader and um, him persecuting the church, even uh, killing those who were followers of Jesus Christ. And so as um, Paul writes this letter to Timothy, he's writing this letter during a great time of difficulty, great persecution, and he writes it as a, a helpful reminder during these times of persecution how not to forfeit our testimony of Jesus Christ or to forsake Christian love because of the pressures and the persecutions that the world brings on us. One of the most difficult challenges that we have as we face persecution and we um, have obstacles in our life is to begin to forfeit those things that are most valuable, those things that are spiritual, based upon the obstacles that are in front of us. Like Jesus Christ, who put on display, a full display, the love of God in his sacrifice, in his suffering, and in his selfless dying on the cross, we also are called to put Jesus Christ's love on display by loving God first and foremost, loving each other, uh, other believers, and also loving our enemies or loving the lost. This is what defines us. The Bible tells us in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. First John 4 and verse 8, the Bible tells us that God is love. And First John 4 and verse 20 The scripture tells us, if anyone says that I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he say that he loves God, whom he has not seen? And we learned last week that the challenge of the book of Timothy, the aim, if you will, mentioned in chapter one and verse five, the aim of the letter is love meaning that the purpose of this letter is to bring about love um, out of those who were facing this persecution. And that at the end of the first chapter, as well as in chapter six, and then second Timothy as well, Paul writes about the fact that this is a, this is a battle. It's not something that is easy. It's something that is difficult. It, it is a challenge to be loving. It is a challenge to be loving, not because... Um, most, mostly because of the fact that we, not everybody is lovable. And so we, we face enemies, we face obstacles, we face people that want to keep us from accomplishing the tasks that we um, see as important. And those people, it's very easy to stop loving them and, and, and then to forsake the thing that God has called us to do. So the challenge to our Christian love is not the call to love God, it's not the call to love other believers, although these things are difficult and sometimes very challenging, but the challenge to our Christian love this morning is to love our enemies. It is to love those who are obnoxious, it's to love those who desire to persecute us and to ultimately bring hurt or harm to us. This is what defines our Christianity we're reminded that Jesus Christ's life was not defined by the fact that he died a hero, nor was it defined by the fact that he died for good people. 
Jesus Christ's life was defined by the fact that he died for his enemies. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 and verse 7 and 8, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, while we remained sinners, while we were sinners at the point, at that point, Christ died for us. So what defines Jesus Christ's life is not that he was a great hero and that he jumped in and saved somebody from being hit by a car. What defines Jesus' life was not that he died for a bunch of righteous people in the world who were deserving of deliverance, freedom, and forgiveness, but what defines Jesus' life is that he died for people who wanted to see him dead, that he died for people who wanted to destroy him. He died for people who hated him. He died for his enemies. He died for his adversaries. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest displays of that is when he was on the cross, he cries out just before dying, Father, forgive them. The very people who had nailed those nails into his hands and into his feet and had had beat him with a cat of nine tails and put a crown of thorns on his head, Jesus Christ's life was defined by an attitude or a heart that desired forgiveness and mercy and grace for those people. Stephen was also, is also seen in that same light as he is being stoned by people. The apostle Paul is witnessing it and we know the story that Stephen cries out, Father, Forgive them as well. We are told in Matthew 5, verse 43 and 44, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Jesus speaking, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the call and the challenge of the 21st century church. It is the challenge that Paul writes to Timothy about that remains consistent, it remains uh, the call or the challenge of our lives each day as we seek to manifest the glory of God and to minister the, the love of Christ to those who are around us. It's interesting that we often lose sight of being loving and being kind because we view ourselves as being set out here to be the judge of the earth. And, and, and I will remind you that Jesus Christ did not come the first time to be the judge he did not set an example of being a judge. He set an example of being a sacrifice. He set an example of being a lamb, of being submissive. That's the example that he set. That's the example that he calls us to. Yes, one day he will return to be judge, but he has never called us to be that judge. He has called us to be sacrifices for, for his work and his ministry. This is difficult to do. This is a battle. Again, this is why at the end of chapter number one, the apostle Paul calls it a war. Because there's an enemy that wants to keep us from accomplishing this. And when our natural tendencies are to hate, to retaliate, to be bitter, or to seek revenge, there is a biblical pattern by which God helps us to see people in a different light and to have a heart of forgiveness, and to have a heart of kindness, and to have a heart of mercy, ultimately to have Jesus' heart towards other people. 
This is, a, this is the greatest expression of our Christianity. It is, it is not how we love those who are our friends, but it is how we love those who are our enemies. It's not how we speak about those who are our friends. It is how we speak about those who are our enemies. Paul gives Timothy some instruction here on how this can take place. And he, and he begins at a very important um, place in, in this situation. He, he immediately goes to prayer. He says the first thing, the first way in which you'll be able to overcome this wrong attitude towards people is, is by praying. It's by seeking God's face in that situation and, and seeking God's face for that person. What does Jesus do when he faces that situation on the cross? He, he prays, doesn't he? What does Stephen do? He prays. He doesn't pray for himself in that situation. He prays for those people. He, he, he lifts them up before the Lord and, and prays for them. This is what our, our call is. This is what's going to change our perspective of the people that we're dealing with, the people that are trying to hurt us. And ultimately, in so many ways, the reason why we struggle to be forgiving, the reason why we struggle to be merciful, the reason why we struggle to be kind and compassionate is because of how we perceive those who are trying to hurt us, how we perceive those who are trying to be an obstacle to what we are trying to accomplish. We've got to get our pers perspective right about those people. And so how do we do that? Well, we do that by praying. So I want to take a, a few minutes to just unpack these eight verses for us in regards to praying for our enemies, holding them up before the Lord so that when we do, when we are challenged to be loving, to, to show that kindness and that forgiveness, to seek mercy for an individual who, who doesn't deserve it, that we will be able to do it effectively. The Apostle Paul says this, beginning in verse number one of chapter number two, he says, first of all, first of all, he, he, he's very, very clear that this is, this is, the, this is the first act the first thing that we have to think about in these moments and in these situations when we're facing difficulty, the first thing that we have to think about is prayer. The first thing, the, the Greek term here literally means of first importance or needing to be done first. It's interesting. I don't, I don't know about you, but when I, when I face difficult people or face difficult circumstances, my first attitude is not to pray. My first attitude is to complain. My first attitude is to murmur. My first attitude is to be frustrated about the situation or about the person. My first attitude is not the attitude of, you know what, I really need to pray for this person or for this situation. The Apostle Paul is very clear, first of all, of most importance, of most significance, of, of first in, in time. The first thing that we must think about in these situations is, I must go to the Lord in prayer. We are at that moment entering into a war. We are at that moment entering into a battle. We are at that moment entering into a conflict no different on a spiritual level than those who enter into that conflict on a natural level where they are shooting at each other with, with huge weapons and dropping bombs. That's the type of war that we're in. 
And we enter into it in that moment when somebody says the wrong thing to us, when somebody acts the wrong way towards us. We immediately, we enter into this warfare and we are challenged in that moment to pick up the armor of God or to pick up the armor of the flesh. And when we pick up the armor of God and the last in Ephesians 6, the last of that is prayer. When we pick up the armor of God in that moment, we're able to respond properly. We're, we're able to do the right thing. But when we pick up the armor of the flesh, we're, we're not able to do the right thing. Jesus tells Peter on the night of his crucifixion, he says to Peter, he comes to Peter and the disciples, you remember the story, the disciples are, are sleeping and um, the Lord says to Peter, Peter, your, your spirit is ready. Peter's getting ready to face great test that night, isn't he? He says, Peter, your spirit is ready, but your flesh is, is weak. Do you know what the very next thing that happens in that flow of that, of that timeline? The, the soldiers come in, right? And they're going to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? He acts in his, immediately in his flesh. Takes out his sword and he whacks off. I mean, that's the natural response, Right? That's the fleshly response. You have an enemy, you have an obstacle, so take your sword out and destroy them. Jesus, in his kindness and his mercy and his grace, picks up that ear. He puts it back on Malchus's face, right? At that moment, I would probably be like, okay, let's leave, right? We've come, to, we've come and we've gotten the wrong guy. We don't want to deal with, but, but no. And then the next moment, what's Peter doing? He's denying the Lord three times. He's, he's living and acting in his flesh. It's so important when we face these difficult circumstances, our face difficult situations, that we respond immediately in the spirit. That we move into prayer, focusing on the things of God and the need of those who are perhaps trying to hurt us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 the scripture says, no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape. In other words, when temptation comes, along with it comes grace. Along with it comes the power of God. But it's in that moment when we make that decision to either give in to temptation or to give in to grace. But beyond that moment, it's very difficult once we say yes to the flesh, it's very difficult to get back into grace. But when we say yes to grace, we win over the temptation. First of all, first and foremost, of, of primary importance, when you enter into that moment where the flesh is rising up, you must go to God. You must enter into a time of prayer, a, a season of, of communicating with the one who is capable of winning the victory for you, through you, and in you. I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what you guys are struggling with today. I, 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 can, I can only imagine that every individual in this room right now is struggling with something. And the challenge is, is Am I leaning on my flesh in this situation? Am I, am I praying? Am I talking to God? Am I reading his word? Am I listening to what he says in his word? The primary and first thing. First of all then, of first importance and first significance, he says, I urge 
The, the word urge here means it's a, it's a call to partnership. He, he's calling these, these followers of Jesus into a partnership of prayer. And, and a partnership of prayer, and I was wrestling through this and some things, you know, just there's, there's a lot of different things, a lot of different practical thoughts that can come from that. But a partnership with prayer, Paul could have been saying partnering with him and praying for the lost, partnering with him and praying for people. And, and that's true, isn't it? We as a church body, we partner together in praying for people. So when, when Paul calls Timothy, hey, partner with me in praying for these people. But it could possibly be a partnering with the people who have no ability to speak to God. The lost world has no ability to communicate with God. God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. It could be our prayers that are the intercession through which God blesses them. It could be our partnering with the Lord. There's a partnership that takes place when we enter into prayer. This word here is used in John 14 through 16 to describe the partnership that we have with the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is parakaleo. It literally means a, a coming alongside of, a comforting. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. That's what the Apostle Paul is urging them to here in this text. Come alongside of these people. Come alongside of me. Come alongside of the Lord so that we might bless and strengthen. And then he says to pray. Philippians 4 and verse 6 and 7 the Bible says, do not be anxious about anything. And that, that word anxious is just another word for worry. So don't worry about anything, right? Is that like the hardest command in scripture, right? Don't worry about anything. That's, that's difficult, but that's, that's what he calls us to. Don't worry about anything. And then we stop for a moment and we ask ourselves the question, am I sitting here in this auditorium this morning with worry filling my heart right now about something. It says, don't worry about anything, but in everything by, what's the next word? By prayer. He, he says, the way that you defeat worry, the way that you defeat frustration, the way that you defeat anger, the way that you defeat bitterness, the way that you defeat all these things is by, is by prayer. It's by praying. It's by lifting these things and lifting these people to God. And everything by prayer and, um, and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God. Amen? We need that peace, don't we? It's not just any peace of God, but he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. M meaning this, there is a peace that a person who is a prayer person, there is a peace that they have that no one else can understand. It's, it's beyond not some understanding, but it's beyond all understanding. That's the prayer that we have. That's the prayer that we're called to. The peace of God which passes all or surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, I just wrote first things first. First things first. Whatever circumstance, whatever situation we're in in life, whatever people we're dealing with, whatever difficulty we have, first things first, what do we, what do, we do? 
we stop and we and we pray. We stop and we and we pray. Um, a, a preacher of old, I can't I can't remember exactly who it is, but maybe you'll remember. He was he was quoted having been he was a man who accomplished great things in his life. I mean, he was involved in everything. He was involved in, in outreach. He was involved in preaching and evangelism. He was involved in, in, um, in, in orphanages. I mean, he was involved in a lot of different things. He was one day interviewed by a, by a news source, and they asked him, they said, how do you have all of the... They asked him, how much time do you pray in a day? And he says, I start off every morning with two hours of prayer. And they asked him the question, how do you accomplish all that you accomplish and still set aside two hours of prayer every day. And he said to them, you've asked me the wrong question. He says, I could never accomplish what I accomplished without starting my day with two hours of prayer. It is the two hours of prayer that makes it possible for me to accomplish the things that I accomplish. Did you know that God can make your hours long or short? Did you know that? He can make an hour seem like an eternity and he can make an hour seem like five minutes. He's in control of our time. He's in control of our resources. He's in control of everything. We can't limit by saying, I don't have time for God because I have other things to do. We're, we're limiting the one who created time and is in total control over, over it. So where do we go? First things first, prayer. What do we pray there are, there are a few things the text tells us about praying. What do we pray when we pray? He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Okay, first of all, what we see in that simple phrase is this. We pray for people, not always with them. He says to pray for them. There are gonna be times, and, and the, the emphasis of this text is to pray for these these. these um, abusers of Christianity to pray for these, these people who are evil people, these people who are persecutors of, of Christ, to, to pray for these people. That's, that's the call. So likely, you're not gonna be able to say, hey, stop, let me pray with you, right? They're, they're not going to be willing to pray with you, but it doesn't limit that you can pray for them. That's what the text says here. He says, prayers, intercessions, supplications, thanksgiving be made for for all people. So we're to pray for people. We don't always get the chance to pray with them, but we get to pray for them. We get to lift them up before the Lord to bring them to God for, for help and strength. Then he says this. He says four things. He gives us four terms to describe the type of prayer that we should pray for people. First of all is supplications. Okay, this, this term implies an understanding of lack or uh, a something that we are without. It, this kind of a prayer arises from a sense of a need. Okay, so, so in other words, when we, when we pray for other people, when we pray for, for their, um, their well-being, or we, we pray for whatever we're praying for somebody else that's lost, we pray with a sense of understanding what they're lacking, and not just an understanding of what they're lacking, but an understanding of what we lacked as well, right? Our prayers can be really powerful when we realize that what we're praying for for them was the same situation or condition that we were in many, many years ago before Christ came in to, to invade our world, right? So 
So this type of a prayer, this supplications, is, is a prayer that we pray having an understanding or a connection to the neediness of those with whom or for whom we're praying. And what do we know about the lost? What are they lacking? What are they lacking? Are they lacking light? Are they lacking light? Now, sometimes we expect them to have the light. We're like, you quit persecuting me and then I'll pray for you. You should be understanding that you shouldn't be persecuting me. We're, we're hoping that they have the light before we pray for them when our prayer for them is what will hopefully bring them the light. So our prayer is directly connected to our connection to their neediness. They lack light. So for them to persecute you is normal. It's normal. They, could, they can't do anything but persecute you. They lack light. They lack eternal life. They lack peace with God. They lack hope. They lack mercy. They lack grace. They lack forgiveness. They lack a lot of things. When we make a supplication for something, it must be directly connected to our understanding of their lack, of their need, of their depravity, of their hurt, of their pain, of the fact that God has not chosen to open up their eyes yet. We pray as if somehow they need to come to some kind of a, a self-decision to see things like we see things. That's impossible. God has to open up their eyes, and we pray understanding that they can't do anything to open up their own eyes. We pray with a recognition that these people are completely hopeless lest Christ come in and intercede in their world. That's what, in, that's what um, supplication is. We identify with their neediness. We identify with their brokenness. We identify with their depravity. And we pray with them with that in mind. We're to make supplications for lost people. We're to pray with their, with their lack as a motivation, a motivating factor or a, or a part of our thought process. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, the love of Christ constrains us, compels us, controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And if he died for all, that those that might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ compels us, constrains us to do the right thing. So we are told to pray with supplications, with, with and I'm gonna use another word, with mercy, with compassion. We're to pray with understanding for those people. What would, it, what would it have been like if people would have waited to pray for you until you got everything in order, right? It is the prayers that we make for those who are needy that matter. He tells us to pray with, he tells us to, to make prayers. The second term that he uses here is just the word prayers. This is a generic, uh, generic term for prayer. It just means to address God. We're just addressing God on their behalf. This term is most often associated with praise 
or with worship, an attitude of praise and an attitude of worship. So when we come before God for these people, we come with an attitude of praise to God and worship to God. What do do we come to the Lord most of the time when we talk about our enemies? Is it praise and worship? Is it complaining and murmuring? That's why he says at the end of this text, he says, do these things without anger or quarreling. Come to God with praise and worship for people who are persecuting you. It's who they are. And it may be what you need to grow in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.15 says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase to thanksgiving to the glory of God. We pray with with worship, with praise to God for the lost, for those who are our enemies or persecuting us. The third thing that he says, the third uh, way or what we pray is we pray, or the fourth is we pray with intercession. Intercession is a very uh, commonly known word. It means to uh, stand or communicate on someone else's behalf. It means to converse or to, to have a meeting. It's, Lord, I would like to have a meeting with you so that we can talk about such and such a person. And there are times that I, I will, and I don't know about you, but there are times where I, I, I pray for a lost person and I introduce them to the Lord. I tell, them what his, I tell him what their name is and I tell them what they do and I, and I communicate with the Lord because these are not his children in a salvific way. He doesn't know them in the same way that he knows me. And so I'm introducing them and I'm communicating with them as an intercessor or a go-between between them and, and God. We are a, a, a someone who stands in the gap between somebody who is lost and God. And we communicate with God on their behalf because they do not have the ability to communicate with God on their own. Somebody who is lost, who enters into the presence of God, will only experience God's wrath, not his kindness. But I can come into God's presence for them and experience God's kindness and God's grace on their behalf. It's very similar to what happens in the book of James. The Bible talks about praying for those who are sick and and it talks about Elijah Elijah and his praying for the rain to stop and and the rain to come back again. And he says that we have that same ability to pray for other people, to to touch the hem of our God's garments for other people, to to reach out to him on behalf of others, that he might bring them salvation ultimately, most important, that he might bring them salvation. That then they might be able to communicate with him on their own. This intercession is the same term used to describe Jesus Christ's intercession for us in Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8.34. And then also in Romans 8, it's the same term used to describe the Holy Spirit's intercession for us. So think about it with me for a moment. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, right? Amen? 
Jesus Christ, the Bible says, he is ever living to make intercession for us, right? How many of us would make it without Jesus' intercession and without the Holy Spirit's intercession? Okay, so he calls you to be that intercession for other people. He calls you to intercede on other people's behalf in prayer. That's how we do it. That's how we communicate with God. We are urged to make intercession. And then lastly, in regards to what do we pray, we are, are, out of this section, we pray with thanksgiving. We're thankful for those people. We're thankful for those people. We're thankful for those circumstances. We're thankful for God's power to save. We're thankful for God creating them, right? Right, amen? Everybody out here, amen, right? We're thankful that God created our enemies. Okay? It's hard to do, isn't it? That's what we're called to. With thanksgiving, we're to pray thankful for God creating those people. We're to pray thankful that God is capable of saving those people. We're to pray thankful for God in those circumstances or situations. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, also dealing with a very difficult time, even, I believe, the last days, he says, in everything give thanks, or give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Right? This is how we pray for our enemies. This is how we think about our enemies. You want to change your perspective of what you think about that person that is opposing you? Start to pray blessings on them. Start to pray God's mercy on them, and then maybe you'll have mercy towards them. Start to pray God's forgiveness towards them, then maybe you'll have forgiveness. It is how we are perceiving them in that moment. We perceive them through our own eyes. We're like Peter. We begin to take swords out. We begin to deny Jesus. We begin to do all of that stuff. If we see them through God's eyes in that moment, we see somebody who's created by God, who is in the image of God, an image bearer, who has not become one of his children because God has not chosen to bring light into his life. And he's a sinner persecuting us, and it's for many times for our good to help us grow and mature. And we pray that God would be kind to that person, that he would show them mercy, he would open up their eyes, that they would see the truth and be saved. Amen? Jesus, the Lord says in Ezekiel, that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, right? But that they would turn from their wicked ways Repent of their sins and live. That was a paraphrased version. Right? That's what our heart should be towards those people. Not God destroy them. God show them grace and mercy. Forgive them. Open their eyes that they might see the truth like you opened my eyes that I might see the truth. I think sometimes we lose sight of what we could have been had Christ not intervened in our world. What should we pray? Prayers, intercessions, supplications, and thanksgiving. He also tells us down towards the end that we're to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. We're to pray with holy hands 
lifted before the Lord. It's, it's a posture of worship. Hands lifted before God. You, you see it oftentimes when people sing, but, but it also is, is applicable to when people, when people pray. Not only says that, but pure hands. The picture of pure hands is, is twofold. They're clean and they're empty. How many of us come to the Lord praying for our enemies with bitterness? Ain't letting it go. Anger, I ain't letting it go. Frustration, worry, I ain't letting it go. The Lord says, come to me and pray for your enemies with clean hands. It's hard to do, isn't it? The Bible tells us in James 5, the prayer of a righteous person, the prayer of a person with clean, empty hands will accomplish much, right? And then he goes on to talk about somebody praying and stopping the rain for three and a half years and that's, pretty, that's quite a bit, isn't it? Pray with open hands. Pray with, pray with clean hands. Pray with empty hands. I'm afraid that some of us come to the Lord and we're so angry at people and we pray with that anger and it's as if we're praying unto ourselves and not to God. We are urged to pray without anger or quarreling. Let me go back to the last one. Psalm 24, 4 and 5 says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. We are urged to pray without anger or quarreling, not fighting, not disputing. Um, we're to pray with grace and mercy. Again, we go back to Matthew 5. The Bible says if you have an offering, if you're come to offer a gift unto the Lord at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. In other words, don't even come to pray to the Lord if you know that you have conflict. Go and deal with it. This is Paul's urging to Timothy for the church. What are we to pray for? Number three, who are we to pray? Who are we to pray for? The Bible says here in our text we're to pray for those who are, um, pray for everyone, first thing that he says, pray for everyone, okay? How many does that mean? Everybody, right? Pray for everyone. There's no one who passes our responsibility to pray. But he doesn't stop there. He says, pray for kings and all of those who's in authority. I believe what the apostle Paul is telling Timothy is this, pray for the evil people. And I'm not saying that our government is evil, but I think during this season of time that it wouldn't have been far from Paul to say, here's the wickedness of the wicked, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for everybody. It's like there would be, those would be the ones that we would say, when Paul says pray for everybody, then Timothy might have said, well, maybe he doesn't mean those people. And so he says, let me make sure that I clarify, pray for the kings and all those in authority. Pray for those who are persecuting you. Not for their destruction. What does he say in the next 
the, the next portion, that God desires all men to be destroyed. Is that what your version says? He says to pray for their salvation. Who are we to pray for? We're to pray for everyone. We're to pray for those who are wicked, those who are lost, those who are our problem, those who are our persecutor, those who wish harm on us. We're to pray for them. Jesus did it on the cross. Stephen did it being stoned. This is what we're called to do. Again, Matthew 5, 43 and 44 Jesus calls us to not love our friends, but to love our enemies, to love everybody. Why do we pray? The Bible gives us some benefits, two benefits here in this text of why we pray. He says that we might leave a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Basically, these two terms in the Greek simply describe an inward peace and an external peace. One, one is the description of a life without external disturbances. The other is a description of a life without internal disturbances. In other words, live without disturbances to your peace. Live without disturbances to your rest. You say, how do we do that? It's by focusing on the Lord. The only way that you can live a life that is absent of, of, of interferences with our restfulness internally and externally is if our eyes are always on Jesus. It's the only hope that we have. He says, live a tranquil, a, 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 um, a quiet life. And that comes by prayer. Live a quiet life internally, and that comes by prayer. Romans 12 and verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. Prayer brings peace, according to Philippians 4, that makes it seem like our problems don't exist. Prayer brings peace that makes it seem like our problems don't exist. External conflict and internal conflict gone through the source of prayer. That's the benefit of it. People problems, circumstantial problems, spiritual problems, financial problems, relational problems, all problems can be dealt with through the power of of prayer. The Apostle Paul experienced that, and here's what he says about his affliction in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look, at, look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are transient, though they're passing, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Prayer brings peace. Prayer brings rest. Whatever circumstance you're dealing with, give it to God and he will give you rest. That's what Philippians tells us. Whatever type of people you're dealing with, pray to God for those people. Pray to God for those people. I tell you a little story this weekend. I was at a restaurant in Gilroy and I was getting my 
I was getting my meal and, and I had a shirt on that said, on the back it said, compete for Christ. And, and I think somebody took offense to that because this man decided to make me his enemy. And he began to, to persecute me throughout the, the entire meal. And I mean, it was bad. I thought I was gonna end up being on the front page of the newspaper because I got beat up by somebody for, for my shirt. I, I don't know, but I, I just, I, I, I knelt down at, the, at my, I didn't kneel down, I sat down at the table to, to take my meal and I just said, Lord, please help this man. Please bless this man. And it, literally, this study that I was studying throughout this whole week just was like totally put into a test. <laughs> like, can I handle this? And it was so amazing because I just had a calm and a tranquility about me that wasn't me. It wasn't me at all. It was like God had taken control. And he, walk, and he walked out and he was even more extremely mad because I did not give in to the temptation to conflict with him. And he called me some choice, some choice words in front of the whole restaurant. But you know, I thought later, I thought, you know what, Lord, you gave me the peace. And you know what I did? I prayed for him again. God helped that man. He's probably lost if he died today, he would probably spend an eternity in a place called hell. I don't want to have anger towards him. I want to have compassion towards him. But you know what brought that to my heart? It was I stopped in that moment and I gave, it, I gave him to God. That's what prayer does for us. What motivates prayer? He says this. This is good. Amen? That's good. It just simply means it's morally right. It's good fruit. A prayer life, somebody who has a strong prayer life is somebody who's producing spiritual fruit. That's what a good spiritual fruit is. When you face bad people, when you face difficult circumstances, if your first response is, is to get on your knees before God and say, God, please help this situation. Please help this person, whatever. Be gracious to them. Be merciful to them. They truly need it in this moment. Um, that's good. Amen? That's fruit. That shows that you are so, you are mature in the Lord. It means good, beautiful, virtuous, valuable, excellent, honest, and noble. It just simply refers to good actions. Not only does the scripture tell us it's morally good, but it says this, that it is pleasing to God. What a, what, what a powerful statement. To say it's good, it's, that's powerful enough, right? For, for God in his word to say this is good is, is powerful. But then he goes on to say, it pleases me. It pleases me when you're facing difficulty and you get on your knees and you put it in my hands. It pleases me. It's pleasing to God. It, it's acceptable to God. It's agreeable to God. When God's children care for people, listen to me, when God's people care for people like Jesus did, it pleases him. And Jesus didn't care for saved people. He cared for lost people. Because he saved them. It's pleasing to God when we have a concern for the lost. Not only that, but it's consistent with Christ's desires. He says that God desires all people to be saved. 
It is consistent to pray and desire for the well-being of those who are lost, the salvation of those who are lost, God's mercy and grace towards those who are lost is consistent with the nature and character of Jesus Christ. You're just simply manifesting what he manifests. Again, Ezekiel 33, 11. The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he has pleasure. His, his pleasure is that they would live and they would turn and be saved. When you face difficult people and you face difficult circumstances, it's consistent with Jesus' character to love that person. Right? It's consistent with Jesus' character to desire what's best for that person, to desire good for that person. That's consistent with Jesus' character, right? Jesus didn't pray on the cross, Father, condemn them, for they know not what they do. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's consistent with Jesus' character to desire good for people. It's consistent with his character. That's what he says here. He says, it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then lastly, it's the only hope that anyone has. It's the only hope that anyone has. We asking our God to open the eyes of somebody who is our enemy is the hope of mankind. Jesus Christ must awaken them. They cannot do it on their own. But our prayer should be, God, please awaken their hearts. Open their eyes that they might see the truth and seeing the truth, they might be saved. Second Timothy 2, the Bible says that we're not to be quarrelsome, but we're to be gentle. We're to be gentle. We're to present the truth that God might grant them repentance that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. I want to close this morning, if you'll turn with me to the book of James. I'm going to close with a simple reading from the book of James. The last chapter. I want to encourage you this morning, whatever you're dealing with, whatever difficult people you're dealing with, difficult circumstances, God is bigger God is bigger and you can go to him and he can change your perspective of those people and change your perspective of those circumstances. Remember this, God can change your perspective without ever changing them or the circumstance. And God just might then change them. I think sometimes God's work with the wicked is more focused on what he's teaching us than it is what he's teaching them. Pharaoh, I think, was a great example of that. God used Pharaoh to teach Israel something. That was the lesson. James chapter number five, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous man has great power in its working. 
Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Do you know what James is talking about? He's talking about prayer. The power of prayer for God to bring people back to himself. I want to encourage you this morning and challenge you as we think about what God has called us to do as a church, as we think about how we communicate and work with people amongst us and people outside of our walls, as we think about how we view our circumstances and our situation, might we always be mindful of the fact that we are the children of the Most High God and we can go to him and he can do way more than we can. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this um, time together. Thank you for your word and the instructions that you gave to Timothy that are so applicable to us today as we face daily difficult people and difficult circumstances. And you are so gracious and merciful to us to have saved us. And you call us, Lord God, to desire the same thing, to have the same heart towards others. And I just pray that you will help us in that area. We know that it is impossible. It is a work of the Holy Spirit by which this is accomplished. And we know that he alone is capable and he alone deserves the glory. We just thank you. Help us to rest this week and to meditate on these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.